Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, your literal skin in the game. And this week we pub crawl Clonakilty in the footsteps of legendary psychedelic bassist Noel Redding. We trace the musical memes through which Johann Sebastian Bach talks to Bob Marley and Jennifer Walsh celebrates the lovable performance art nerd-off that was Josh Fight. But first, how it came to pass that the bass player from the Jimi Hendrix experience had had a residency in a Clonakilty pub for nearly 30 years. When Kent-born Noel Redding brought his bass guitar to town, it began not just a love affair with the land, but also a unique musical constellation that persists long after his death. This week we're going to have a little audio history of Noel Redding and Clonakilty, which we begin in the company of another West Cork musician, Les Sampson, drummer in Noel's post-Hendrix band Road, who now lives in Towhead, outside there's a light in the window. It's get the whole place going. We would all be up and swaying to that. Even still, like my memories of watching him playing, like when he hit that zone playing bass, I would struggle to find anybody as solid. He's playing it in a sort of a very full sort of open sort of way. It nearly described as nearly legato. Notes were joining into each other and it was very, very sort of full. Anything could really happen at those gigs and anybody could get up on stage and anyone, somebody, the, the unassuming person who you had been serving for the night, next thing uh, might get up in the second half of the set and just set an instrument on fire. I remember as a kid distinctly going to school, like going out through the bar in the morning, looking over by the piano and Noel's famous jazz bass would be like literally lying half in behind the piano from the night before from a session. He inspired a lot of people to get involved in music and, and to try to be the best they could be. OK, my name is Les Sampson. I'm a drummer. Hello, mate. How are you? And uh, I played with Noel Redding for a long, long time. I met him in 68. I'm from Kent in England. Just up the road from where Noel was born. People keep saying Folkestone, but he was actually from Sandgate. Which is up the coast a bit further from Folkestone. But Folkestone was the main town near him. But it was actually Sandgate that he was born and where he's from. I'm from Ashford in Kent, which is inland a bit more, where the Channel Tunnel railway stations are. Going down to the country Where the air is so nice Noel was older than me by about four years or so. I was playing in local bands... And he was with Hendrix and all that. And he, he came back and bought a house near Ashford in a place called Aldington. And um, he saw me playing once in a local band and he liked what I was doing. And I was 18 at the time. This was 1968. And um, I got to meet him in all his full psychedelic glory. We hit it off right away and... Um, he asked me to what I was doing. I'd just finished an apprenticeship as a plumber and God knows what else, you know. So I gave all that up on his advice. Next thing I know, I'm in Detroit, Michigan, 
with him, you know, doing the, the big stuff. <laughs> Hendrix thing was very frantic. It got very difficult to be, you know, egos and one thing and another, like these, like it always, you know, get the same sort of thing. He'd had a row and he was, he had left and he was kind of in a no, nowhere position. He was in and out and seeing people and arguing and stuff. But then it all sort of stopped and Hendrix died shortly after I met him. There was a band in America called um, Rare Earth and the guitar player, a guy called Rod Richards, all of a sudden appeared at Noel's house in Aldington looking for Noel and Mitch Mitchell to form a three-piece power trio, a.k.a. You know, like Hendrix sort of thing, with him as the main guitar player. He's a very good guitar player and singer. And so that's what he wanted to do. But Noel said, no, I can't work with Mitchell because... You know, they didn't get on, it was just look. So he said that I should play the drums with them. It was called Road, and we did one album. In the road band, there was a lot of um, activity. We were doing big gigs and stuff, you know. There was a lot of money involved um, on the gig front and stuff, and a lot of... Uh, all the other stuff that goes with it, you know, you get the, the very Noel was very famous at the time. We were living a very high type of life, and it became, you know, the usual sort of thing. So Noel got really pissed off and left the band. <laughs> got fed up with people not letting him be anything but the bass player from Jimi Hendrix. So he decided to get out of it because it was just boring, you know. He just he couldn't do anything at all. So he decided to leave the LA scene and everything. Uh, and he actually did put a pin in a, a map one night, him and Carol, Carol Appleby, his, his girlfriend at the time. They put a pin in the map and it just happened to land in Clonakilty. Thank you, thank you. This is now called a fag break. could actually tell a story about this, but I won't at this point. It's very humdrum. He phoned up an estate agent and he asked what, what places were available. One came up in West Cork. I'd love if that was a more mysterious or mystical <laughs> tale to tell. You know, but geez, his story doesn't need any more mystery and, uh, and poetry, really. But yeah, no, it was a simple property transaction on the basis that they were looking for somewhere where they could live cheaply, live organically. They kept animals. They made jam. They tried all sorts of different kind of mini miniature agricultural businesses to keep themselves going during the 70s and things like that. And they fitted in quite well. Like, with a lot of bohemians moved into West Cork. He was a very small, tin man, and he ate very little, but they grew loads of pumpkins. I'd never seen a pumpkin in my life. I mean, you know, I grew up in West Cork, and then they started growing pumpkins. They grew courgettes, tomatoes, potatoes, anything. They were very, very self-sufficient, you know, but that Carl was. Noel followed along with it. He looked every inch a rock star when he 
came into a premises, you know, or even walking down the street. He, he stood out from the crowd. Like a lot of people in the early 70s, you know, there was a turn away from the urban was part of the hippie movement. Uh, so he wanted to be able in a place where he could uh, play professional music with brilliant professional musicians and brilliant amateur musicians, as you can anywhere in rural Ireland. And he talks about getting into West Cork and suddenly feeling a much more lively, vivid experience of, of his life, being out into all the weathers, you know, that you're exposed to when you're living in a kind of a rickety old place uh, out in the wilds of West Cork, you know, so very, very different in New York. Noel, like, had a couple of collaborations with different groups locally, like uh, the fiddle player Vince Milne, and Paddy Keenan the psychedelic kind of rock of Hendrix is what people might know him best for but he, he had so many other interests as well and in particular rock and roll the whole set really there was bebop aluba summertime blues love the one you're with Noel would sing the vocals he'd have a full repertoire and he, you know all these all the, all the classics you know he'd He'd strut him out, it was great. He, he could play psychedelic stuff, he could play experimental stuff, he could play jazz stuff. It kind of, he played folk, he played in a folk band in West Cork, but mostly he'd be known for kind of bluesy rock and roll, you know, classic 50s and 60s rock and roll. And then kind of a bit of outlaw country as well, you know, so yeah, that kind of a mix, that kind of entertaining the, the beer belly people on a Sunday afternoon, having a good crack. He was earning his living. In the 80s, he played in Shanley's a lot. Then he sort of moved on from there and then in the 90s he established himself in the bars on a Friday night. In his nature he was quite careful anyway. You know, Noel used to keep a diary every day. If he came into Shanley's to have a a, a, a glass of Heineken he wouldn't have a pint. He wasn't a pint man but he'd, he'd have a glass. Then he might have another glass of Heineken. But he'd make a note of it. It had had two glasses of Heineken here and up to the bars and had a, a drink there. He'd come into his gig and he'd finish his gig and he'd go home. But then during the week Noel was always one that would come into Clonakilty, do his bit of shopping, and he had this famous swift half where you come into the bar and have a glass of Heineken or a glass of Murphy's, as the case may be. For the kids there, when they came 18 and they could go to pubs, like it was just normal that Noel Redding plays in the bars every Friday night or back in the 80s that he plays in Shanley's, and they'd all check him out. The right so In the early 90s, when I was working in the bar one Friday night as we did, and Noel played, and Mitch Mitchell was around for a little while. He spent some six or eight months in the area. And so Mitch was playing with Noel, but there was George, Big George, I think we used to call him, he was from America. But he played, and he was a huge guitarist. They'd done a Hendrix set. So you had Mitch on drums, Noel on bass. For someone of my age and my interest in music, to be able to say I saw two of the Hendrix uh, experience belting it out in front of my eyes. I suppose years later, thinking back, it was all part of what he said to us the first thing, like, keep your foot tapping. The foot would always be tapping. He would be a backbone. The whole band could be going in all directions. And he was the rock, which, I mean, listening to Hendrix, you'll see that. You know, he like he held it together. Noel played a huge role in influencing people to take up music in West Cork, but he mostly taught them by example. The Barrows became a kind of a, a, a kind of a university of the folk arts, if you like. I would 
confidently say like he's he's left the town. He's made he's made it what it is today, artistically and musically. You know there were so many seeds scattered and. You know, it's still evolving. The great thing about him was the hospitableness he showed towards other musicians. And some of those people were really, really famous musicians, you know. Uh, Eric Bell from Tin Lizzy and, you know, David Bowie, you know. Uh, I have to, uh, you know, I'm just amazed <laughs> that David Bowie was playing in Clannacilty in the 1980s. But then he's only one of, the, one of a long list of similar names. Back in the 80s, there was very, very little sort of I thought interest in, in Hendrix and Noel it wasn't until the 90s when uh, grunge and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, and that era and the 90s took off that the, 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 the currency of, of Jimi Hendrix and, and the Jimi Hendrix experience really exploded and I found that Noel was travelling a lot more he was he was over to the States a lot more he was working with guys from the Spin Doctors and Guys from Bon Jovi, and he was going to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or and this and that, working with Pete Towns and stuff like that. So the currency of 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 all that came right up. Carol Appleby, Noel's partner, died in nineteen ninety. They'd been playing a gig up in Cork City, and they were coming out of the venue, and a car crashed into the back of them. And in those days, it was you know they had the amps literally in the back seat, and she hit her head off the amp, and yeah, she died. So that's that was just one of the greatest tragedies of all our lives. She was well-loved as well. She passed away. And at the funeral, her funeral, then, you know, Noel started talking about his own funeral and what he'd like it to be like. Uh, and it was within a couple of months then of that, he was gone himself. He wanted an Irish funeral as opposed to, you know, a disconnected... He wanted the whole wake, the whole shebang. So we gave it to him. At his funeral, somebody turned around and said Noel died of the 60s, you know? Even though it was 33 years after the 60s had finished. It was 2003. I suppose... The- the last gig was his funeral. You know, we, we had a great three-day session in the bar, in the bars, and, like, I remember with all the... Everybody was in such shell shock. With all this going on, nobody thought of the music for the service. So it was, like, all of a sudden panic, to, you know, to get Steve Housen and myself. We, I think we played in the church. I played piano. To my surprise, they called on Donovan. So he walked up the church, tapped me on the shoulder as he was passing and said, Catch the wind in G. You know, down in Clonakilty, you've got a statue of Michael Collins, which was unveiled maybe 20 years ago now. You know, I suppose having something there for Noel, you know, whether it would be a a, a street, the Noel Reading Park or something, I think that would be really nice because uh, he he brought music to the place, certainly. The voices of Clonakilty and environs there on the West Cork years of Noel Reading. And you heard from Les Sampson, Dave Lorden, Olive Finn, Martin Kingston, Ray Blackwell, John Fitzgerald, Bill Shanley and Dermot O'Sullivan. Galway Early Music Festival is happening for the 25th time this year, bringing online from tomorrow its menu of medieval, renaissance and baroque music making, adding to the mix this time a few chords of Eddie Cochran and a taste of Bob Marley. Some of the most familiar chord patterns in popular music first arrived in Western ears in the 16th and 17th century as part of a baroque craze for dance music. These grounds, as they were called, are also the seed for a work workshop at this year's festival, exploring the centuries-spanning power of three chords, with or without the truth. Culture File got a grounding from the pair behind the session, guitar hero Eamon Sweeney and viola de gamba hero Malachi Robinson. Our 
I remember particularly seeing at the Galway Early Music Festival, it's where it all started for me, back probably around 2000-ish or late 90s, I saw a guitarist playing there, Steve Player, and he was playing this music and he was strumming and he was a dancer as well, so he was dancing and strumming. Um, and I just remember sitting there going, that's what I want to do, actually. If you feel these things because they're part of your culture, then you don't need to write them down. And that's certainly even more the case for what the percussionists got up to in those days, which we can only guess at. And percussion in this music is terrific and adds a huge amount, but it's mostly speculation. Uh, once you've lived with the stuff for a while, you start to feel, well, this must be what they would have done, you know. I'm Malachi Robinson, and I'm here to talk about ground basses with Eamon Sweeney. The role that I'm playing here is uh, as a bass player, but not on a double bass, on a viola da gamba. But I'm taking it back at the point at which it was, in fact, a kind of a close cousin of the guitar. So we're doing guitar music and using the gamba as a kind of bass guitar, really. I'm uh, Eamon Sweeney. I'm a guitarist. And these days, uh, my primary interest is exploring early guitar-like instruments from the 15, 16, 1700s, lutes and various types of guitars that were around then. What led me into this whole area was my, my, my original background was, with the guitar was as a, a rock guitarist, as a teenager, wanting to be in Led Zeppelin. Then I got interested in the classical guitar in my 20s. And as I finished my degree was when I started to become aware of there was such a thing as a historical and early guitar from the 16 and 1700s. I had thought it was just lutes back then. But I realized it was guitars and these guitars were strummed and these guitars were looked down upon at the time. And if you read some of the quotes from the time, it's like you're reading about Elvis. There's, there's various music dictionaries talking about guitarists with their ridiculous facial contortions and bodily movements. And another dictionary describes the guitar, an instrument played much to the detriment of music. So these dances, these grounds, come from 1500s into the 1600s, and there was a whole bunch of them that seemed particularly suited to the guitar. They seemed to come in, especially be influenced um, or be forms of dances from Spain's colonies abroad, from South America and from West Africa and places. They were literally three-chord tricks on the guitar anyway. Uh, if they were getting fancy, they, they moved towards four sometimes. And then as the centuries went on, they became gentrified. And a lot of these dances became part of the classical canon of dances. And you'll see versions of them by Handel and by Bach and etc. But in their early life, in the around 1600, they were risky, uh, fun, wild dances that if you were caught dancing them in Spain, you could be banished from the kingdom or sent to the galleys. And it was very obvious to me then that, that the guitar playing hasn't changed that much you know in, in so many ways that what you would learn as a singer songwriter starting off budding guitarist the same chord progressions the same same movements now obviously there's been a bit of change over the years but basically that and that's where this workshop for the Galway Early Music Festival that's that's the genesis of it because over the years of playing this stuff and knowing rock music as well a bit seeing the, the you know the the clear connections just in western music so what happens in, in the interim years? You're talking about how this kind of music from the 16th or the 17th century became eventually gentrified and is concert music now. But where was this sort of parting of the ways that something else turned up in, in rock and roll? Yeah. Hmm. Well, the parting of the ways in terms of, I suppose, if this music was folk music at the time, but it was also court music, 
at the time, meaning in the 16th century. So in the 17th century, Luke, the business of being a musician was in fact to play and also to compose. And as time went on, the business of composing and performing became separated. And in the, by the time we get to the 19th century, uh, it's rare that you find a composer who also performs. And the idea then of a conductor, for example, who doesn't either compose or perform, that would have been a bizarre suggestion. Um, so it's the, it's the fact that all these jobs got separated and that they became super specialized, which allowed, of course, for uh, towering masterpieces of, of Western art music. But it did mean then that you could no longer be in that mainstream of music without super specializing. And that's where folk music became separated. Um, yeah. And so uh, that that opened up a divide, which is where rock and roll uh, stepped in, you know. So this piece we can listen to now is uh, it, so it's taken from a, from a very straightforward rock and roll song. This is "Come On Everybody." Um, it uses the same chords you're going to get in any rock and roll song, in any blues song, and then also in this this music, these guitar dances from from this period, the Baroque period. And they're exactly the same chords. You should be able to see, you'll hear a slight shift, but the shift is only in that the Come On Everybody is in four time, uh, which was the, is the, the standard thing for rock and roll. And uh, the Pasacalia Spanish dance is in three time. Um, but apart from that, you know, they're, they're, they're very interchangeable. Okay, so this one, this is a chord sequence called the Chacon back in the 1600s, but it's still around. If you look, I think if you look at the top 10 charts in any given month for the last 30, 40 years, you'll find songs using this pattern. So here we give you a taste of a couple of ones that fit with it, uh, one being Let It Be, um, A Woman Who Cry. So so lonely by the police, but we could we could have gone on into Within or Without You by U2, that one, the theme song from the Sopranos. So there's just it's endless. Everybody has written Chicago without knowing about it. Yeah. So the workshops that we're going to do for this uh, Goi Early Music Festival online jam, uh, Baroque and Roll, I think is the title we've given it, which is just the most obvious title you could think of, which is sometimes a good thing. What we've done is we recorded some of these grounds in historical style using the, the, uh, the Baroque guitar and the viola de gamba. We've sent these loops to anybody who wants to take part with us next weekend. And we've also sent then with that, you'll get some PDFs of very simple suggestions for both the, uh, the chords that are involved. Nice and simple. We also send you the, the, the scale or the mode on which a thing is based. So you can use that as a basis for noodling. And we've also sent you some suggestions for melodies that you might put over the top of it. So then next uh, weekend, when we do our live thing, uh, everybody who's joined in will have done some homework for this and can join in with us. We'll be playing live. We'll be talking about how to take this a little bit further. Really, it's for any level, but I suppose we're gauging it at, at school children primarily. And we'll all have a bit of a jam. Anybody wants to be heard, 
uh, we'll give them the chance to be heard by the group. But inevitably, because it is going to be over a Zoom platform, people won't be hearing each other. They'll be hearing us. And hopefully everybody goes away feeling how uh, both people and music haven't changed at all. Eamon Sweeney and Malachi Robinson there, and there's still time to sign up for that Baroque and Roll online session, which happens this Sunday, 23rd at 2pm. Check out galwayearlymusic.com for more info. If you're less than entirely rigorous about how you spend your time online, you've maybe seen the video. A meadow full of youngish males, some in medieval costume, some wielding acid-coloured sticks of foam, all in wobbly combat. And then maybe you clicked away somewhere else. But Jennifer Walsh tuned in instead to a flashing signal from our collective future, as the composer now explains in her latest Things Know Things. On April 24th, almost a thousand people gathered together in a field outside Lincoln, Nebraska, armed only with pool noodles and their wits to fight for the right to be the only person in the world called Josh Swain. The roots of the Josh fight lie back in April 2020, when during the first flush of lockdown, an American civil engineering student named Josh Swain created a Facebook Messenger group chat with all of the other Josh Swains he could find on Facebook. He sent them all a message, which read, You're probably wondering why I've gathered you all here today. Because we all share the same names? Precisely. April 24th, 2021, noon. Meet. We fight. Whoever wins gets to keep the name. Everyone else has to change their name. You have a year to prepare. Good luck. Josh Swain's post quickly turned into a meme and one year later, on April 24th of this year, almost a thousand people, including at least 50 people named Josh, turned up for battle. After extensive rounds of rock, paper, scissors and a decisively unvicious battle with some pool noodles, a four-year-old child named Josh was declared the overall winner. You can see tiny Josh in the videos, beaming as he is crowned with a Burger King crown. Everybody seems to be enjoying it tremendously. They raised over $14,000 for the local children's hospital. Bless their hearts. I love the Josh fight because it's an example of an internet meme erupting into an in-person event. A Facebook message transforms into a wonderfully ludicrous collective performance that people drive thousands of miles to take part in. The virtual floods into the analogue world, just as it did in the raid on the Capitol building back in January. But instead of being driven by hate, the participants in the Josh fight are driven by a spirit of anarchic fun. The Dadaists would be proud. Search Google Maps for the location of the Josh fight today 
and you'll see a marker for a historical location called the legendary Josh Battlefield. As of writing, it has 111 five-star reviews. What a wonderful place. I think it's like Olympias for us, writes one reviewer. Another part of the history of the internet, writes another. This is how we live now. Online is online, but it is also offline. A great deal of the time, there is no clear demarcation between the two. Our lives are a blur of the virtual and the biological, and all of it is very much real. Jennifer Walsh there on the meaning of Josh fight, very much a real thing. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more mixed reality shenanigans next Saturday tea time, here, there and everywhere on RTE Lyric FM. Till then, bye now. <laughs>